The D2C Growth Show. Well, Matt, welcome and thanks for taking the time to uh, sit down with me and just have a live conversation about, you know, all things Huron and and, uh, and your journey. Um, for everyone listening, Matt is the founder and CEO of Huron, a really, really cool direct-to-consumer brand in the men's personal care space. Um, started off in skincare, recently entered the hair care space. Um, I'm sure Matt could talk a lot more about Huron in a much better way than I ever could. So maybe to kick things off, Matt, you want to share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Phil, for having me. Um, yeah, happy to kind of give you the not so interesting background on me personally and how that dovetails into probably the more interesting Huron backstory. But so quickly, I'm originally from Ohio, grew up in Cincinnati, um, went out east for undergrad, graduated in 2008 pretended to be an investment banker for a few months at Morgan Stanley shortly thereafter, uh, quickly realized I was arguably the worst uh, investment banking analyst maybe to ever grace planet Earth. So I kind of started looking elsewhere on what might be a little bit better fit for me. Ended up kind of serendipitously meeting the guys at Bonobos um, when they were a team of four, four or five. So joined that team pretty early on in December 2008 as kind of a finance and ops ninja slash packed pants and boxes for many hours a day. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a super cool experience. And just kind of reflecting on that, that was certainly way before the traditional, as we know, it, D2C world, right? You know, the yeah. way we kind of summarize Bonobos. It was a company that sold men's pants online. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, the, the D2C acronym is, is much easier and, and familiar these days. So um, a few years at Bonobos, ended up moving to Chicago, went back into banking. So I spent some time at UBS in Chicago and their M&A group, and then spent three years at a consumer private equity firm. So kind of the opposite table of a, of a Bonobos, where we were looking at and kind of evaluating early stage consumer businesses. Um, and kind of professionally, that's kind of where I was, you know, uh, you know, the broader personal care category kind of peaked in interest. So spent three years at, uh, at this fund, Winona Capital, and ended up migrating west to, to grad school at Stanford, um, which is kind of really where we started to kind of turn the, turn the dial up a little bit on, on Huron. And really, the thought for me was twofold. One, kind of going back to what I was saying uh, just a few seconds ago. So at Winona, we had invested or at least looked at a number of investments kind of in and around the broader personal care category, but largely on the, on the female side. So we looked at really cool companies like a drunk elephant um, and a number of others. And I was thinking, you know, you know, there's so many cool brands out there, amazing messaging, super cool copy, great founder story, packaging, et cetera. And I'm still a mid 20 something who's buying my neon green body wash from CVS. Right. So there just mm -hmm. felt like an inherent disconnect. Um, so professionally, there was always a little bit of an intrigue there. I think more relevant, more personally, is I was just a kid that grew up with bad skin. Right. So I had, you know, you name it at your local grocery store. I, I tried it um, and then kind of went through the dermatologist world, tried seemingly everything that was there to offer. Nothing really worked. And then while I was out west for business school, I you know kind of wound up walking into a quote unquote premium skincare store and bought a face wash that I'd probably be embarrassed this day to, to say what I paid for that. Um but for whatever reason, that product really resonated and my skin responded positively. And it was kind of like an aha moment. But I didn't know anyone personally that would have kind of jived with that overall experience. So the thought was, could you create some of these products that would rival these more higher end products from an efficacy perspective, but bring them down a little bit more to the masses, right? Have a relatable tone of copy, um, just speak to these products in a way that made sense. Um, so that was always kind of like the longer tail vision. I think 
tactically what we did to even see if there was an opportunity, um, we actually launched a fake brand in Q1 of 18, which was super interesting. So we, we bought a URL, um, we put up a really crappy site on Wix, and we just kind of sat back and learned. So we ran social campaigns all across the Midwest, kind of ranging and testing copy from, you know, uh, clean men's skincare to all natural men's skincare to organic men's skincare to kind of learn from the top of the funnel side what was working, but then understanding what kind of products uh, that this customer would be shopping for. And I think that was wildly informative to me um also someone being incredibly risk averse like i wanted that third party validation that this hunch that i had for a you know potential company actually would make sense and actually had a little bit of runway so we did that over the course of q1 of 18 we had a lot of success from that which was which was awesome so i ended up moving from sf to new york to kind of pursue this full time and when i landed in new york uh you know i'm supposed to meet you know, a number of folks for coffee and kind of networking and whatnot, but ended up meeting a uh, gentleman, Matt, who would eventually be my business partner and co-founder. But his background is he spent upwards of 20 years in product development at Estee Lauder. So, you know, building products for the lab series of the world and Tom Ford men's and a number of different fragrance brands. And I think while I had kind of touched on so many other facets of the business, whether it be kind of performance marketing or finance and ops and analytics, you know, Matt was the guy who knew how to make the product. And that was certainly not my skill set. So I think, you know, we, we had certainly complementary skill sets from, from the get-go, um, but a shared vision around what kind of this new age brand could be for the guy who was still trying to figure out the bathroom. Um, so over the course of 2018 to 2019, we built products, um, raised some money. We worked on the creative development uh, with an agency here in New York called Gin Lane, which is now Pattern Brands. Um, and then we eventually launched last July. So July 29th of 2019, 10.42 a.m. Eastern, but who's counting? Um, and then, you know, we were kind of off to the races from there. Okay, super cool. I love I love the overview. Um, really, really interesting journey. And I almost want to start back at the beginning and kind of just dig into like some of your thought process and learnings and experiences at the at the top of it. Um, and, you know, I, I think, Bono, Bono, is it Bonobos or Bono? How do you pronounce it? <laughs> Bonobos. Bonobos. Okay. I know I get it wrong all the time, but they were obviously (laughs) super early, um, within this category. I even remember in like the early 2010s, uh, being in San Francisco on a trip and jumping into a, uh, store, uh, a Bonobo store. And I went in and you actually couldn't take a product home. You could only Mm -hmm. buy it and they'd ship it to you. And I was like, wow, these guys are living in the future and this makes so much (laughs) sense. And, you know, fast forward, of course, Andy, who's the founder there has had, you know, immense success and uh, really was a pioneer in this space. Um, So when you think about that company and your experiences in that kind of every man role, you know, as you put it, what what did you learn? Like, what were some of the takeaways that maybe have influenced um, decisions you've made, you know, today at at Huron? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, kind of unequivocally, is this notion of the consumer as the North Star, right? I mean, I think whether you were a finance and ops analyst, which is what I was at Bonobos, or you were a production member, or Andy, or a customer service ninja, I mean, the thought was always, what can we do to provide a 12 out of 10 experience? And I think for the longest time, Bonobos has been kind of one of the kind of gold standard type companies from a from an NPS score perspective. And I think that just becomes, or as a direct result of so much passion and effort and dedication towards maximizing the overall CX, whether it's on site, whether it's, if you have an issue, whether it's return. I mean, we used to have customers who would like vacation to New York and spend an entire day at our offices, which was 
an interesting way of spending your vacation, but one nonetheless. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, that that was certainly a point of difference. And I think one of the things that we've tried to channel at Huron is, you know, how do we make what is otherwise a fairly commoditized purchase, which is purchasing body wash, into actually an experience, right? Which is, what can we do to make this experience from start to finish a 12 out of 10? What can we do on the retention side? What can we do if there's a fumble um, on our end, if there's a fumble on the carrier end? You know, all of that kind of reflects back up to us as a brand. So, you know, we, we tried to pressure test so many different areas of, of the overall buying and consumer journey and thinking about what can we do to, you know, overall create the best possible experience that a customer could have, uh, you know, with your own. And so when you think about that 12 out of 10 experience, I like that articulation. Maybe um, you could break down some like the key elements that stand out that help bring that that to life or maybe a framework that you have as to how you look at it. Yeah, good question. So uh, our director of retention um, in CX, one of the things we put together a few weeks ago, just kind of reflecting back on you know how the, the first year was uh, for us. So I guess a few, more than a few weeks ago. Um, but just think about like, how would you distill that framework and how do we kind of approach these conversations and these relationships on a day-to-day basis? And I think one of the things we, we came up with, which we were pretty excited about is this notion of a jet framework where J is judgment, E is empathy, T is trust, um, trusting your team members to exhibit really good judgment on hand, how to handle these sometimes one-off scenarios, empathy. So meeting the customer where he or she is at, if you have a really poor experience, like how can we empathize with that and, um, you know, come down to their level and kind of understand the frustrations uh, at a really tangible point. And then trust is trusting one another to make really good judgment, to make really empathetic decisions, but then reinstilling that trust with the customer. So kind of that framework really kind of summarizes how we approach each individual customer service ticket that we get or each community inbound we get on our Slack channel or email, um, SMS response that we receive, you know, that's kind of the frame of mind that we're in when we're, um, you know, in, in discussions or, uh, engaging with our base. How, how do you balance kind of systemizing, you know, responses to common problems with still applying like a strong degree of judgment and trust with your team and, and giving them the, or empowering them to apply, you know, solutions to challenges in an empathetic way. And I think it's this challenging balance as maybe like a CEO where you want to operationalize things as much as possible, but not everything can be perfectly systemized. And how do you think about balancing those things? Yeah. I mean, I think CX is an interesting area of the business to explore because there oftentimes isn't a blueprint, right? Um, (laughs) You know, certainly there is for some results, you know, hey, you know, the order, this order says it left the warehouse two weeks ago, but I you know, I haven't received the product. So there are certainly kind of the vanilla answers that we can provide and still providing great value, but but maybe answers and inquiries that require a little less intellectual horsepower. I think where you exhibit the really good judgment is for me to say to our team, like, I defer to you as to what's right, right? Whether it's refunding an order and overnighting a new one, or comping a product to a really great customer, or comping a product to someone who offered really, really great feedback. I think those are, for us, low-cost initiatives to really create a lasting impression. Again, what would otherwise be in a category that could be viewed as commoditized, right? Yeah. And I think for for much of the audience that we're targeting, um, you know, this is a subset of, of guys who might have been 20-year Dove for Men buyers, right? Like, name me another product that 
a guy has purchased for 20 years consecutively. This has become such an autopilot purchase that our biggest obstacle is our biggest opportunity, which is how do you effectuate consumer behavior change? And I think creating that type of experience, um, surprise and delight, what have you, really is that opportunity to kind of say like, wow, this brand kind of gets it. And I really like their product. I'm willing to make the switch. And I think that's kind of the spark that we're looking for. That makes a lot of sense. And it's one of those things that I feel like, you know, you can bring to life in a much more clear way for existing customers. How do you think about bringing to life, you know, kind of the the brand around the surprise and delight that you deliver to customers Um, for maybe someone who's never interacted with Huron and maybe they're used to going to, you know, CVS or, or Walgreens or wherever they pick up their, you know, their body wash. They're just hearing about Huron, but they don't they don't know that you guys, you know, take these unique approaches. How do you how do you think about incorporating that at the top of the funnel? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. And I think, you know, what would be antithetical to that is to kind of scream that from the mountaintops, right? It's like, totally. hey, we have really good service. Um, <laughs> that's more of kind of like a, a back-end experience. So I think the thought is, is kind of twofold. One is we invested a lot into copy, not necessarily like financial investment, but everything that goes out kind of from us into the, into the ether has really been pretty thoroughly vetted from a copy standpoint. How do we sound as a brand? How relatable are we? I think a lot of brands tend to use authenticity in the broader D2C landscape. I personally don't really like that word. I'm more of a proponent of relatable, which is like, hey, we've been in your shoes. Like I've wa- I've wandered my fair share of CVS and Walgreens aisles looking for products that work, but like didn't really find one. Like here's why we're confident that we could be that brand for you. And I think that first person touch point actually resonates quite well. And then secondly is the opportunity to, opportunity to educate, right? So having someone like my partner, Matt, um, kind of lead our product efforts. I mean, we're dealing with someone who built some of the largest brands in the world, um, especially kind of in the broader beauty space. So having that, you know, that knowledge base, that skill set on our roster is incredibly impactful. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to kind of speak from a point of authority, but have that voice come through as a persona who's like your older brother, right? Which is like slightly more experienced than you, maybe slightly cooler, but not necessarily a know-it-all, which is not what what we want to come across as, but someone that you would look up to and turn to to say, hey, I have a question for X, like we hope to be that brand that that can provide that answer. Really interesting. Great, great way of thinking about it. Before I jump forward, and I want to actually spend some time a little bit later today diving into how how you actually build product and how you think about, you know, and how I guess your co-founder leads that. But before we get there, one thing I thought that stuck out stuck out when I was kind of looking into your background was how you actually went from from Bonobos, where you, you learned some really interesting stuff um, that clearly has been, uh, you're applying in a really meaningful way to Huron. But, um, you know, you took a stint in finance. I'm curious kind of why you took that approach and, and were there things you learned there um, outside of kind of identifying the market opportunity that you highlighted earlier that have influenced, you know, your journey building this company? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was just, kind of pattern recognition across professional mentors I had at the time. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned kind of earlier on kind of from Ohio, originally my mom's a school teacher recently retired and my dad worked at Delta for almost 35 years. So when it came to this mythical world of business, (laughs) I didn't have a lot of people to kind of turn to. Um, So I looked at folks like Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, and kind of said, you know, what was Andy's career path to get him to where he was at at the time? It was 
consulting or banking and then you spend some time in investing and then maybe go back to grad school and then hopefully launch your own business. And as I kind of looked around the folks within I, with whom I admired kind of in my small circle at the time, that was kind of like the common, the common background, the common set of skill sets. So I was like, cool, like, I guess this is the track that I'm supposed to be on. So, you know, that was kind of the impetus was, you know, go back, kind of understand and get a financial background to understand the X's and O's of things. And then hopefully leverage that in a few years to propel yourself maybe to an investor role and then maybe have the opportunity to go to grad school. And then you would have the skill set to go launch your own business. Now, is that the only way to become an entrepreneur? Like, obviously not. Um, it was just kind of the, uh, you know, the personas or the archetypes that I had around me immediately that I thought were, were obviously really good business models. Got it. Really interesting. It's always interesting to to see the paths uh, an entrepreneur takes because kind of to your point, there is no right way or standard way. There's so many different ways. And I think this mo- this kind of path you've gone down is... Uh, is quite is quite interesting, and I'm sure has provided a lot of you know great experience to help you avoid a lot of mistakes that maybe uh, first time founders typically make. Sure, I mean, look, that's probably uh, that's a whole separate conversation because I feel like uh, I've, I've made no no few of those, no shortage of those. Um, but I think you know, even going back to the broader entrepreneurship conversation, I mean, there are a million reasons to say no. Here's why I shouldn't do it, right? But yeah. I think, you know, I, I try and tell people, be the voice of yes, like be your own cheerleader. Um, you know, I think what I've learned along this journey is, A, you learn a ton. B, the broader network is incredibly supportive, right? I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a bunch of different founder friends that I can call on to ask questions about supply chain or hiring or fundraising, et cetera. Um, and I think there's just kind of this broader wantingness and willingness to help. And, you know, I, I think this experience for me personally has been incredibly fruitful and I can't think of another job that I've had to date where I've learned so much in short, such a short period of time. Um, so, you know, so I try to encourage people, you know, yes, there will always be reasons to say now is not the right time for X, Y, or Z reasons. But if you can be your own voice of yes, then you should take the leap. Love that. Be the voice of yes. I'm going to be quoting that on Twitter at <laughs> some point. Um, love that. One thing that has always stood out uh, from here on from a from kind of, you know, a seat back or from afar and, and looking at how you've built the brand has been the high degree of product quality. And people talk about that. It's very clear that Huron is an excellent product. Um, can you walk us through how you how you and your co-founder think about product? Um, how you actually think about, I guess, product development, because I think we live in a world where it's pretty easy to like create a low quality product is not very easy to create something that is actually incredible when you purchase it. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think in early stage D to C, there was an opportunity to maybe slide by with a really beautiful website, a great yeah. CX, really cool branding and a very mediocre product. I think we live in a world today where consumer expectations are far greater than what they were. Yeah. Um, so for us, I mean, it, product was something we wanted to lead with, right? I think that was kind of the, um, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, which was I, I would have never been exposed to kind of broader, quote unquote, prestige skincare unless I had gone through some of these trials and tribulations, right? So it wasn't until I explored some of these more efficacious and coincidentally higher ingredient from a price point perspective, products that like my skin responded positively. So for us, Matt and I have always opted into what can we do to make these products as multidimensional as possible, 
what can we do to make these products as efficacious as possible? And I think for us, it was never really a, you know, obviously there, there was some sense of speed to market, but I think speed to market in more um, traditional industries, you know, the SaaS businesses, the world, et cetera, you just get, get an MVP out and, and iterate and test, et cetera. Right. For mm-hmm. us, we had such a high bar of what it meant to put great product into the market. You know, that we, I mean, we ended up delaying launch by a number of months because we felt that it was imperative to put products in the market that we were massive fans of and that we were using every day. Because if we weren't, how could we honestly speak to our consumer and tell that story, right? It's like, well, if, if you don't even believe in these products, how are we supposed to? So the, yeah. the amount of time and effort and development that went into these products, um, you know, was was quite lengthy and, and, and very few uh, expenses and, and allotments of time were spared. Um, and a lot of that comes from Matt and his background is just being incredibly tough on, on products. And we're very fortunate to work with a great group of product developers, um, chemists, labs, et cetera, who believed in our vision kind of early on and were willing to take a chance on a, on a pre-launch business to help create great products. Super interesting. You know what? I love to get tactical in some of these conversations. And so maybe a question that comes to my mind is, you know, what does a product development cycle look like, um, especially, you know, particularly in the category that you play in? So this is all news to me as of 18 <laughs> months ago, um, longer than love that. It. But basically the way it starts out is almost like a term paper. Like you write a thesis around what you want this product to be, what the claims you want, what the benefits you want. Um, how you want the skin to feel, how do you want the product to perform, what the fragrance might be, what the approximate you know, cost per ounce may be, et cetera. So you kind of do some monkey math on the costing exercise. You lay out pages and pages of you know, the sensorial effect, which for us is really, really important, the claims, benefits, et cetera. Um, you, know, you pass that over to the lab, you review, and then you really start iterating on product. Um, and I think for us, again, kind of another tip of the cap to our manufacturing partners, you know, a lot of the brands will get, you know, a handful of iterations from these manufacturers, right? You know, maybe you get it, you know, maybe the, the, the manufacturing partner is able to nail it by the third or fourth iteration. I mean, we were in the forties on some of our iterations wow. where we're tweaking levels of fragrance by 0.005%. So, so, I mean, when, when you say we kind of get into the nitty gritty of things, um, you know, we, we, we kind of firmly stand by it and there is no experience like listening to my partner, Matt describe fragrance. It is like unworldly. He's like, you know, after like three hours of wear, the, the fragrance is a little scratchy. I'm like, I totally have no idea what that means, but I'm taking your word for it. Um, but again, uh, long story short, you know, there's so much emphasis that w- that went into the product, into the creative, into the tone of voice, et cetera, to not bring a plus plus product into the market would be a disservice yeah. to all those other factors of the business. Yeah, totally. And I think you nail it on the head there. It's just like business is a system and each piece of that system needs to lift each other up. And when you have a weak link, you need to address that weak link because it can bring down all these other incredible pieces that you've put together and, and product certainly sits at the center. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
I think one thing I also take away is just like that expertise that your co-founder has um, and, and how probably how many f- mistakes you're avoiding because of his expertise and in, in specifically in the fragrance P- uh, space and, and building kind of personal care products. So maybe let's shift to, to talking about teams and, and building out a team. Um, you know, I think you've provided some interesting insight on how you, you partnered with your co-founder. Um, but as you built out your team, maybe what does it look like today? And how do you think about talent uh, acquisition and, and, and filling the right folks in the right roles? So today we're, we remain a small team. So we're only three full time. Uh, Love it. We hired uh, our first employee, Johnny, in March of this year. Um, and he was kind of had the that quote unquote athlete background that we were looking for. He spent a few years in finance and actually worked for a, a larger New York based D2C company after that. So I think kind of channeling back earlier Bonobo's days is you find smart, driven, motivated people and throw them into roles and let them figure it out. Right now, obviously you provide the guidance, the direction, the help when necessary, but you, you give a lot of responsibility to those folks and you let them go succeed. Um, And I think that's kind of our mentality where, you know, we have the capability of a small team to do a number of different things we're very fortunate to work with a great number of partners, not just on the manufacturing side, but we have an amazing creative designer. We have a web developer that are, are kind of both freelance. Um, so, you know, supply chain fulfillment, et cetera, kind of the list goes on. And the way that we've kind of approached partnerships in general and working with these folks, whether freelancers or actual firms or agencies, is we vet these folks incredibly thoroughly. and then we kind of invite them inside of the brand walls, right? One of the first things I ask when we onboard a new partner is I will never call you a vendor. Like don't ever refer to us as a client because it's so much more than that. That to me is a very transactional relationship where you're here to do X, not Y, like don't tell me anything else. Like, no, as our, you know, paid social agency, like we're going to tell you everything that's happening. We're going to tell you what's happening in the development process, timetables for X or Y, because that's important buy-in because we want you to think proactively on our behalf as we're thinking about the social strategy, et cetera. Um, and I think we've really benefited from that type of mindset um, and kind of bringing folks inside the brand as, as a true partner and not a vendor client relationship. Right. Um, so I think, you know, outside of that, we are looking to grow the team. Um, we will probably bring on a number of folks in the coming months as we continue to grow and scale, which is exciting but we aren't just going to go hire 50 people over the course of 2021 and then cut half of them six months later, <laughs> right? It's, it's, yeah. it's an intentional growth process around what do we need? Where are we not the best? <laughs> what areas do we need kind of some outside help? And then who's the right fit? Um, you know, so that's kind of the, you know, the, the hiring thoughts for, for the next few months. What are some of the, the functions that you're looking to build out? Good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, for us, customer experience will always be something that regardless of where you fall within the hierarchical structure, you will have a hand in when you join Huron, because I would argue that's the most important function of the business, right? It's not the VP of growth. It's not the head of this. It's literally CX because you're on the front lines. Um, and so much of that informs so many other facets of the business. Um, and it's actually surprisingly quantitative. I was talking to Johnny about that earlier this week. You know, a lot of CX is pattern recognition. Hey, what are we hearing from customers? How can we use that data to inform our website copy? 
or what we're doing on organic social or even paid. So I think CX will continue to be an area of focus for ours going forward infinitely. Um, I think areas where we also have to supplement is probably on the growth side, um, thinking about how we continue to explore other channels, how we continue to grow kind of our presence, both organically and through other channels. Um, and then probably a few other areas that we'll, we'll tackle along <laughs> down the road a bit, but those are kind of the two areas of focus for now. Well, that, and I, I like that articulation of how customer experience is the most important function of the business. And even just the concept of everybody who comes into the organization needs to touch it and feel and, and, and have uh, some contribution towards it, even if it's not their core role. Um, I, I think the brands that stand out in today's day and age are the ones that go deep in customer experience, because if you can build that relationship with the end user, you know, you can get past a couple speed bumps that are almost inevitable in a growing company um, because they know you actually care. They know you you actually give a shit and that there's people behind it. And um, I think that was some stuff, some of the kind of points you were touching on at the, the top of this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, another kind of framework that we have is, you know, do things that aren't scalable so that you can scale, right? Like yeah. a lot so- of those touch points come through CX. Like for instance, in the, in the summer when it was warm out in New York, we were doing <clears throat> city bike deliveries for local New York city customers. Super cool. And so many people got a kick out of that. And for me, it was super fun because you get to you know, meet customers who are buying from you a handful of times and buy them a coffee or take a quick porch selfie or whatever it is. But it, you know, w- what better way to spend a few hours, but for a lot of people they're like, Oh, well, you know, I just have my fulfillment center send out and which is totally fine. But you know, w- what are those ways where we can kind of swing the pendulum back in the direction of a point of difference where the world is moving into a heavily automated world where there's an app for your apps and everything and you can set <laughs> and you know a personalized email reminder to come from this email platform and just like well what about handwritten notes or what happened to hand delivering products i mean i think there's th- those are opportunities where you can really create winning experiences that are obviously very unscalable over time but that's how you kind of build your you know, your, your loyal audience from the early days. I'm a firm believer in that. Love that. Two things that don't scale. I think that's, that, that idea has come up from some of the most forward thinking founders I've spoken to on, on this community. Um, and they do it all in a unique way that, that makes sense for their brand. And mm-hmm. I like your example of jumping on a city bike. Those are the ones that you rent for like an hour, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Jumping on yeah. a city bike. Cause who else is doing that? Like you talk about building loyalty and, and your brand, like there's no better way. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just fun, right? You, yeah, know, you get to you totally. go meet a bunch of people, and that's a cool experience for them. And yeah, it's uh, you know, it's just little things that you can kind of take advantage of that, um, you know, you just kind of lean into. Totally. And so when you were when you were kind of you know out of beta in your first launch, uh, or you first launched uh, the brand, but let's talk about some of your early growth channels super small team. So I assume you had a direct, uh, you're, you're driving this pretty directly. You know, how did you get your first hundred customers, your first, you know, thousand customers? What were some of those early channels and what worked, what didn't? So we explored a number of different avenues. I think, you know, probably everyone is familiar with kind of the Harry's model, right? Which is kind of the referral program pre-launch. You get 200,000 emails and when you're ready to go, you're ready to go. Right. Well, mm-hmm. that, that was obviously a little bit different story for them. Um, you know, we, 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 we did have some pre-launch traction through email signups and referrals and whatnot. I mean, 
I remember on a few separate times, I literally just downloaded my entire personal Gmail contacts list and would just break them up into people I literally haven't talked to in forever. It's like, Hey, you remember me? You interviewed me for this job that you didn't hire me for, but <laughs> I'm launching here on now. So you should buy some. Um, I, I mean, we, we kind of emptied the tank on that front, but you know, you, you do what you can do. Right. So that was, that was certainly one of the ways we got some organic traction, I would say. And then, you know, we, we, we kind of pulled and, the necessary lever levers and played in the usual channels of paid search and paid social. So we had a little bit of a Facebook presence. We had a little bit of a SEM presence, um, you know, but kind of coming out of the gates, it's a lot of friends, family, early supporters that are going to back you obviously, but that's when the real challenge begins after that, right? It's okay. You got the wave of your, your early onboarders or activists out of the way. Can you go acquire and win eyeballs from other brands? And I think that's where kind of getting scrappy and getting thoughtful and, figuring out ways to, um, you know, drive awareness, drive attention. Um, you know, that's when that becomes a, a pretty in the weeds game. And I think honestly, like a lot of arbitrage opportunity that existed on paid social in 2012 to 2014, like is no longer there. So what are the yeah. other levers that you can pull to, again, bring awareness to the brand in a category where a lot of guys have been shopping on autopilot for 10, 15, 20 years? Certainly. And, and so then the, the question I must ask is what, what were some of those levers that you pulled, um, you know, to, to build awareness for the brand? So a, a little bit of a contrarian viewpoint, but I'm sure some of this has, has probably come across in our discussion thus far as, you know, we wanted to make sure that the, the backend experience was super tight, right? So what does retention look like? What does post-purchase email flow look like? What does you know, the informational email follow-ups look like. We, we wanted to make sure that if you were to take a chance on us, for which we were forever grateful, that ideally we would be the brand for you for X number of years down the road, right? So rather than just simply turning on the switch on Facebook and spending as much money as humanly possible and crossing your fingers and hopefully get a bunch of transactions, it's like, let's build the back end out first so that we can retain as many of these folks that walk in our door as humanly possible. Uh, so that was kind of step one, to be honest. So a little bit of a contrarian approach. Um, and, and two is, you know, you, I mean, early levers, geez. Uh, I, I wish I had a great answer. I mean, for us, we, we do live and exist in a category where sampling is possible. So we get, I gave out a ton of samples. Um, I mean, I always keep a backpack with me of like 50 samples at all times. And I will cool. just sling those things out all day and all night, even today. Um, so, you know, it was weekends in New York, you pack a bag with 50 things, a body wash and see a group, go pass out five, see a group, go pass out 10, drop them off at a gym, like whatever you can do to just get product in people's hands. I think that's certainly one of the tailwinds of our category is just, you have the opportunity to do that at Bonobos. We weren't really gifting wool pants to a bunch of people on the street. Um, yeah. you know, so that's certainly one of the, you know, again, benefits of this category, but I mean, you just look and say like, okay, if, if, we don't have a crazy war chest of capital to go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on Facebook every month. What can we do to win eyeballs? Um, and you just kind of get scrappy. Love that. Sampling is actually not something I've heard uh, be super common. I feel like in your space, you can get the smaller product sizes and get those in as many hands as possible, even in an unscalable yep. way. It's, it, it makes total sense. Um, 
I love the focus, actually. You know, you talk about it being a little bit counterintuitive, but I actually think it's quite pragmatic and, and thoughtful, that heavy focus on the retention experience. And once you get someone, you know, walking through what that entire post-purchase experience is like, and maybe you can provide some more color into what that post-purchase experience is is like for those who maybe have never interacted with the Huron brand before and how you've gone about developing and thinking through that. Yeah, and I, I would say that it's constantly changing, right? So it's yeah. not like our... our you know, our initial foundational uh, building blocks are still in place by any means. But I think the intent was how do we make sure that this is a great post-purchase experience? So whether it's kind of email follow-up from me individually or a member of our team to thinking about educational emails around, hey, here's like the best way to use face wash, or you really don't need to use that much. That way the product will last longer. Like I think there's so many little tips and tricks that we can share with our customers to kind of they actually are kind of consumer first. Things was certainly a tailwind for us and obviously kind of Matt's background and the knowledge that we could offer a lot of these consumers was certainly um, a point of emphasis in coming through kind of email campaigns and flows, et cetera. Uh, second, I mean, once we launched, I was in our fulfillment center on launch day and I wrote hundreds of thank you notes. Right. I mean, that's again, like probably table stakes for a lot of folks, but for me, like that was really important that it wasn't just the generic Clavio or MailChimp email coming from the founder, but it was someone with, uh, frantic handwriting who was probably misspelling a lot of things, like actually writing a note and putting it in their box post-purchase. So again, like some basic blocking and tackling, but again, in today's world, certainly goes goes a lot further than one may think. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially in a world, as you characterized earlier, that is uh, increasingly automated. Yep, exactly. exactly. Have, have you guys used SMS at all? We have. Um, we're still figuring out the right tactic, I would say. So the way we kind of bifurcate strategy and tactics strategies like 30,000 foot view, like very high level tactics. Like what's, what's the day to day. Right. And I think strategy for SMS for us is how do we continue to offer a plus products in an even better experience. And I think what we've seen from SMS is it's a very engaged base. It's a very um, engaged medium, but you hear a lot of, KPIs, right? Like, well, you get a 99% open rate through SMS for email. It's like, yeah, of course, because no one wants an unread text message, right? Like that's not rocket science. (laughs) So a lot of these KPIs are kind of like throwaway facts. I think what we've tried to say is what we're testing now is like, what's the right cadence? Like what's the right number of SMS messages to send to the community before we feel like we're, um, you know, like not respecting the inbox, so to speak. And like, we never want to play in that, in that area, in that gray area. So what we've tried to do is, is not just send transactionally driven SMS messages, but maybe a look behind the scenes. Or, you know, I sent one a few weeks ago as we were picking up our new iStick product of like a selfie, like on the manufacturing floor at our manufacturer. Like some like cool behind the scenes stuff, right? And, and the thought there is like, does that resonate with everyone? Probably not. But the point is, is like we want to establish um, upfront that this is a channel that will not purely be hey, here's 15% off of our new bundle. But it's like, hey, here's actually a look behind the scenes and kind of how we're building this brand together. And I think kind of sharing some of those insights has been 
a point that's been fairly well received by a lot of folks within our SMS community. Very cool. When you get responses on SMS, how do you how do you manage kind of the, the assuming there's some level of scale to it? How do you actually manage response being responsive? So before we send on SMS, we we actually make sure we're kind of all hands on deck just in case people want to go uh, keyboard uh, keyboard happy. But it's yeah. cool. I mean, we we get a ton of responses, which is awesome. Um, and I think that level of engagement isn't quite the same on email, right? I mean, you get an email you don't really want, or you just look at it, you're like, oh, that's cool. Like Marcus, yeah. where I think it's text people are like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, where's your facility? And then maybe we answer and they're like, oh, cool. Like, and we'll be like, have you tried out the new product yet? Here's one feature that we're super pumped about. And it just creates a much more engaging kind of colloquial type conversation versus maybe more formal on email or other channels. Really interesting. I, I like that you get everybody on deck ready to go so that when the sea of responses comes through, you can actually manage it. Cause that's the opportunity. And to your point of, you know, doing things that don't scale, um, that certainly doesn't scale yet. You're now developing such a meaningful relationship with the, with the customer. And, you know, actually I see, um, Ellie here listening in from Olipop and he runs uh, CX there. And we had him on, on chalk a few weeks ago here. And, uh, he had some really, um, similar points of view around, just doing things that don't scale and building an incredible experience um, for each person and treating them like a person instead of a number. And I get the sense that you guys do that in quite a sincere way. Yeah, I mean, I think Eli is kind of the uh, SMS savant. So <laughs> he's right in the playbook there. I think we're, uh, you know, he, he's, he's been super helpful for us as a, as a brand friend. And I think what they're building in Olipop is tremendous. And I think a lot of that is attributable to the experience that they offer their customers um, across a number of different platforms. And I think what they do on SMS is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, certainly. I learned a lot on that, on that conversation. And I guess um, maybe outside of Olipop, which we, which I think is a fantastic brand. Are there any other brands that you look up to that you think are just doing a fantastic job that there are elements you try to emulate from? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there certainly are brands that, you know, we would kind of consider our brand friends, right? Where, mm-hmm. um, we like email communications. We like, uh, some of like the text angles or approaches that they're leveraging vis-a-vis Olipop. Um, yeah. you know, uh, subscription presentation, web aesthetics. I mean, there's so many different metrics on which to kind of collect and chat about and whatnot. And I think, you know, we do have a, uh, a good ecosystem of, of folks we share notes with and, and definitely respect and admire, um, but I think it just depends on kind of what, what topic, uh, because I do think, you know, a lot of brands do a lot of different things incredibly well. Um, but I think it just also just kind of circles back to what I was saying earlier around this just being like an incredibly supportive network rely and I have met a handful of times just to chat around CX and retention and compare notes and whatnot. And I think that's, that's super cool to have two different brands operating in two different categories who can speak very openly about kind of some of the strategies and tactics that they're deploying. Right. Um, yeah. you know, so it, it's, it's a, it's a really supportive community out there. And I think, um, you know, we've been fortunate to, uh, to get to know people like Eli. Certainly. And I feel like it's almost surprising sometimes how much people are just willing to help if you reach out. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think like at the end of the day, um, not there, there aren't a ton of brands who are doing things wildly different, right? It's like, Hey, are you emailing your customers? Or are you using MailChimp or Clavio? 
It's like, hey, are you using SMS or are you using one of these four platforms? Right. Yeah. So it's not like every brand is, is full stack in-house building all their own proprietary tech. It's just not how that world works anymore. But what I think isn't commoditized is the thoughtfulness and the intent behind the scenes. Right. And I think that's where we've been able to learn from and kind of, um, you know, understand what some of these other business leaders are doing. And, you know, that certainly helped us uh, along our journey. Really interesting. Maybe just on the topic of tech stack, what, what are some of the, the tools that, that you have found quite useful as you build out here on? So we are on Klaviyo for email, which has been incredibly helpful for us as we kind of splice and dice our email list to think about, um, you know, when we're sending out an email, you know, Johnny, who's our director of retention and CX, I mean, he's a, he's a wizard when it comes to Klaviyo. I mean, we have more segments to send to than I would even know what to do with. So it's amazing what he's been able to kind of put together and how we're kind of fine tuning messaging to various customer groups. So we're, we're on Klaviyo for email. Um, Yotpo has been really, really big for us on the review side. I think customer reviews are really, really important in our category because the switching costs, while the price point isn't high, kind of the loyalty is, right? Where, again, for a lot of our consumers who enter Huron for the first time, they're trading up from a brand that they might have been using for the past 15 years, like what other products have you been using for the past 15 years? Like, yeah, are you still not. wearing old Navy carpenter jeans? Like <laughs> maybe not, maybe, maybe not though. Right. So you think about like, what are some of these habits that haven't evolved over the past decade and a half? This is one of them. So how do we think about kind of pushing that consumer over the edge to say, okay, fine. I'm willing to give this brand a chance. I think you use it through social proof and, and reviews are a great opportunity to do that. So Yotpo for us has been really, really impactful. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there's any others that were, uh, I mean, geez, we have so many partners that we're obviously very, very um, fortunate to work with. But honestly, I think those are those are two that come to mind as, as being kind of standouts. Very cool. Um, we're getting to the last 15 minutes. I usually keep the last 10 minutes open for, for the, the community to kind of come up on stage and ask you a question directly. I'll unlock the stage at that point. Cool. Um, maybe we'll dive into another topic before we do that. So anyone who's listening in, if you have a question for Matt, um, I'll open up the stage in five, five minutes or so. It'd be really cool to get someone to, to pop up and ask a question or two. Um, but what, one thing, and I, I only know it's public and I took a look at Crunchbase. I noticed you guys have kind of taken a more modest approach in, in how you finance the business, which is super interesting. Um, what I was able to see was you've raised a million bucks from some really interesting angel investors. One of them that stood out was, the CEO uh, and founder of RX Bar, which which I think we all know had a really incredible exit. Um, I'd actually just love to think hear how you think about both financing for Huron and what, as well as how you think about building out the cap table um, for the for the business. Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think um, I think for us, the way we approach fundraising is ideally we're looking to kind of cross the chasm from being a brand to being a business. Right. And what do I mean by that is kind of, you know, a brand has great branding. It has amazing customer loyalty, retention, et cetera. Um, but a business is self-sustaining. Right. And how do we get to a point where we're pocketing 30 cents on the dollar of every dollar of revenue we generate? Right. And I think for us, like profitability has always been kind of infused into the DNA of Huron. How do we think about efficient acquisition spend? How do we think about keeping a nimble team, nimble and agile team? How do we think about understanding 
the capital that leaves our business and what is it ultimately going towards? Because for me, if it's not going towards winning a customer, we better have a high degree of conviction that's a, do- that's a dollar well spent. So that's kind of like how we're thinking about kind of capitalizing the business in general. And then secondly, from kind of constructing an investor base, um, you know, I've been fortunate to, to get to know a lot of great founders um, and business leaders throughout my career, whether it's Andy Bonobos, Peter Rx Bar, et cetera. Um, and we wanted to kind of construct this cap table with a lot of these folks who have built brands before who could help us grow and scale by kind of avoiding costly missteps, right? It's, I wouldn't hire someone at this stage because of X, Y, Z reasons, or I wouldn't pursue this channel yet because ABC. And I think having kind of that base to kind of bounce ideas off of was incredibly helpful for us in year one, as we were such a small team as basically Matt and I, again, for the first eight months. Um, And I think that kind of value operational ad uh, was something that we'll look to kind of build upon, you know, going forward as we grow and scale. Very cool. I, I love the focus on profitability. And I think maybe there isn't a right or a wrong way to build a business. Um, but, you know, having intent behind the strategy is quite important because uh, you may make decisions in a very different way. Have you thought about uh, debt capital from like platforms like ClearBank or Shopify Capital? There's like a new one that pops up every day, it seems. <laughs> Yeah, um, and we we have worked with some of those partners, and I think it's you know the the non dilute non dilutive capital is certainly a, a great way to scale. Um, and I think to your point, they're becoming more and more players that are entering that scene that would allow an entrepreneur even in an earlier stage to say, "Hey, I don't want to give away thirty percent of my company at you know at the, in the second inning or even the top of the first. And now yeah. there's opportunities to kind of flex and say, "Okay, we may not be." Uh, we you know we may not do a million dollars of revenue in our first seven hours, but we feel like we're growing things um, with the right cadence and with the right intent and kind of with the right mindset that will allow us to be in a much better position three, six, nine, 12, 18 months from now. And I think, again, that's kind of where we're trying to figure out is, you know, where are dollars going? Um, how can we continue to remain lean and mean, but also, how can we continue to provide great value and, and kind of grow here on at a clip that we're super, super excited about. Do you set targets like from a growth standpoint on an annualized basis, or are you more focused on profitability with each dollar that comes in? I mean, we certainly have monthly targets and whatnot. Um, you know, I think <laughs> the numbers on the Excel sheet are, um, are numbers that will never be right. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. you know, as right as they can be. Right. As right as they can be. Um, but I think it, those do a good job of kind of keeping you in check and understanding what the budget is and where you can deploy. And, you know, if you do decide or if you can unlock a little bit of value in one particular channel, do you have the wiggle room to lever up a little yeah. bit? So I think it provides kind of a fundamental basis from which to jump from. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those numbers are, are largely placeholders. Very cool. If you're a D2C founder listening right now, you know, do, Matt, do you have any advice on how they should think about, you know, maybe their first round of capital? Yeah, I mean, it's look, it, it's a it's different by brand, right? And there there will be some people that will want to raise as much money as humanly possible so that they can go on to do X, Y, Z. And maybe yeah. there are brand specific goals that maybe aren't a huge focus of ours. So I really do think it's case by case dependent. Um, what I will say is approaching 
any fundraising process with intent, right? It's understanding what you want to get out of this process from a partner, from a dollar amount, from a dilution standpoint, um, or to, you know, maybe dilution doesn't matter. And you just like, Hey, I, I need to do whatever I can to get to, you know, to get a million bucks in the bank so I can go execute X, Y, Z. But, but that's still kind of wearing a hat of intent. So I think, yeah. you know, again, just kind of channeling that thoughtfulness, that vision, that focus, that intent to then go execute on, on a raise. Um, you know, it's tough because there will certainly be ups and downs. You'll get a ton more no's and you will get yeses, right? But that's, you know, all it takes is a really good 29 minute conversation for someone to say no, but I'd like to introduce you to person X who then goes and leads you around. So it's this notion of, you know, staying positive, staying appreciative, being grateful for people's time, following up, being diligent, um, understanding that no is part of the game and kind of rebounding and, and staying on the course. Great advice. Um, I just unlocked the stage. If anyone wants to jump up, you just tap the talk. I think it's a speak or talk on the top left. Um, sometimes people come up, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's awkward for a second. So I'll, I'll lean into the awkward silence for, for 10 seconds. Uh, please feel free, anyone who's listening, to, to jump up and ask Matt a question. Okay. If someone else, uh, if somebody else has something, I'll leave the stage open to pop up. I've got kind of just two more, uh, kind of general questions. And then I think we can, we can wrap up. This has been super insightful. Oh, Chelsea, you came up. You have to come back. Maybe. I feel like Chelsea accidentally clicked one. Okay. All good. Um, Chelsea, I see you're back here. If you want to come up, please feel free. All good. Um, also, I, w- I will say if this is not the forum, um, people can just email me directly. I'm mad at useheron.com. So I'm happy to field any questions or talk through anything with folks if, if that's more comfortable for them. Love that. I appreciate you uh, sharing that. Thanks, Matt. Um, so my last two questions. First one would be, and I, I ask these two to, to, to pretty much everybody that comes on. Um, when you look 10 years out, where do you think the direct to consumer e-commerce space goes. What do you think it looks like in in twenty thirty? Geez, I don't even know what it looks like in twenty twenty one. True. It's a really good question. I think honestly, that's probably one of my biggest areas of improvement is kind of taking my head out of the weeds at times and kind of thinking about bigger and broader vision. Um, I think certainly new channels were emerge, right? Where brands won't feel maybe as constrained to paid social or mainly Facebook and Instagram um, as the case in 2019. I think wholesale will become increasingly important. Um, I think kind of marketplaces will become increasingly important. I think even just understanding the change in perception of Amazon over the past few years, right? There used to be this heavy negative connotation where if you were a brand that was selling on Amazon, you were diluting yourself, right? You were diluting the brand. But for us, I mean, that's been a really, really efficient channel for us. And, you know, my response to that is think about the breadth of consumers that shop on Amazon and then name me another retailer that carries that level of, you know, consumer, you know, differences. I mean, there's none. Um, So, I mean, I think there's just a lot to be said around, what can become of the wholesale channel. I mean, probably not too many massive brick and mortar storefronts popping up, but 
what will be the opportunity to live offline to get into consumers' hands by being on a shelf or being at a point of sale that's enticing enough for someone to grab as they're checking out, right? So I think kind of the changing wholesale environment will certainly be an area of focus over the next few years. Um, I also just think you'll you'll continue to see a number of brands pop up that are continually more mission-driven, right? Where, look, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself uh, born to be an entrepreneur, but why I feel like this is a really good category for me is because I am the, I am the end consumer. I was that person five years ago. So I yeah. feel like I can stand on kind of a soapbox of sorts and say like, this is who we're fighting for. Like we're fighting for me five to seven years ago. Um, and that's why I feel like I can have such an in- intimate one-to-one conversation with a lot of our customers. It's because there's that, there's that tie-in, there's that shared experience. And I think consumers and customers in general will care a lot more about kind of what's behind the scenes at brand, the why behind the brand, what's in the brand DNA as they consider kind of the overall purchasing journey. So I think you'll start to see a lot more businesses that pop up that are, again, born out of need, born out of, um, you know, there's a strong passion for something um, and, and customers and folks on the other end of the table will really take note of that. Love it. For for a guy who says he doesn't have a big, broad uh, vision as a strength, I love <laughs> how you think about the future. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I see Abe uh, popped up here, so please uh, feel free to ask Matt a question. Thanks for coming up on stage. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you both for, for hosting the chat. You know, lots of uh, great information, learning a lot. So super appreciative of, of awesome. both of you. Um, so I had two, two quick questions. The first is, and I joined a little bit late, so hopefully I didn't miss it beforehand. But one is kind of the what fueled most of your guys' growth? Was it kind of that, you know, non-scalable, reaching out to folks, organic referrals, you know, organic search, things like that? Or is a lot of that early stage growth typically, you know, for you guys kind of driven on that, you know, paid acquisition and, um, you know, just making lifelong customers? And, you know, if you can make lifelong customers using paid, obviously the returns there can be pretty attractive. Sure. Um, really good question. I think I could probably um, break it down into probably three different areas. So six weeks after launch, we were actually in the New York Times. So from a PR perspective, that really, really, that was a huge tailwind from a pure brand awareness standpoint. And that was just out of pure luck. So I'm also a firm believer that when folks tell you that they're more than 95% like when luck is not more than 95%, they're short selling luck, right? Like that was a hundred percent luck. Um, so that was certainly a brand awareness piece. Second, I think we started to unlock some value on paid social where we felt like we could invest at a little bit more aggressive rate, but still generating a return that we were really, really comfortable with. And then third, quite honestly, is we launched on Amazon on March 1st, kind of right as COVID was happening. And I think what you saw on Amazon was Amazon became basically the one retailer that could continue to deliver in two days, right? So people were buying, just show people were buying wipes, people were buying X, but there was also just this increased consciousness and awareness of, you know, now I've been sitting in my apartment or house for 18 hours today. Like, what do I actually eat? What do I actually put on my body? What do I actually do X? Like there was a lot of kind of self-realization a little bit. And I think that was a tailwind for our category uh, by and large. Awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, that's super helpful to know. And then, and then the second one that I was curious about, you know, is how you guys think about, um, kind of like product and SKU expansion, you Mm -hmm. know, are you looking to stay kind of in the, you know, um, 
in the realm that you're in? Are you expanding to like oil-based products and, you know, kind of tackling sure. more of the other gaps that men have or yeah, curious to learn more about that? Yep. So we, we actually just launched hair, which is kind of our first big extension, uh, about two weeks ago. That's gone incredibly well, which we're really, really grateful for. And I'm like, great, maybe we should just launch products every week. This seemed to work well. <laughs> um, obviously not, not scalable. Um, but to be quite honest, I mean, we still have products in the hopper that we went into development before launch. So, I mean, we're, you know, these are products that we'll see the light in Q1 that we've been working on for quite some time. So I think, um, you know, there is a few SKUs that we've, you know, that we have had in the hopper for quite some time. But I also think we're starting to understand based on customers that we have in our community via email or via our Slack group that can kind of tell us what they want, right? So hair is one of the first products we kind of co-developed with a lot of our guys, which is what pain points you currently see in kind of the shampoo or conditioner that you're using. Why do you even use shampoo or conditioner? Do you like the fragrance? Do you like X? Do you like the way your hair feels after? And I think you start to tease out a lot of these points with customers who are willing to share their experiences and you can kind of create this amazing product and formula kind of in tandem with folks that are already your customers. And that's been really, really exciting. So I think that has to be um, obviously balanced with avoiding skew proliferation. But I think for us, we'll continue to roll out products that we're really, really excited about. Awesome. Look, uh, great. Learned a ton. Appreciate that. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming up, babe. Um, Matt, Last but not least, and we'll wrap it up. It's five, it's five my time, seven your time. Who knows what time it is these days anyways with COVID. <laughs> but um, one thing I'd love to ask is just, you know, what book um, has had a big impact or maybe the biggest impact on your career so far? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I am a huge Nike fan. I spent my summer in between first and second year of grad school in Beaverton working at Nike. And I mean, I feel like one of the prerequisites is to read shoe dog. Um, you know, but when you think about Nike and you think about this massive behemoth, um, to understand kind of even like the inventory and working capital issues that they were struggling with, like well after they got off the ground, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know, brands at various stages are still kind of fighting through the iceberg theory, right? Which is on the surface, everyone looks fine and dandy and everyone seems to be doing just a great job, but underwater, like people are swimming with fury. Um, so, you know, that was a book for me that was always uh, really, really interesting and, and a really fun read. Super cool. Well, Matt, I just want to appreciate, uh, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate all the insight and perspective you shared. Um, thanks so much. This was fantastic. I learned a lot and, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks everyone for listening in and Matt, have a great night and everyone listening in. Have a great evening too. Take it easy, everyone.